Welcome to All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitalman. Today's guest is Erica Scott's predecessor, Shanta Karipamla. How are you today? I'm doing well. I have the week off of work, which is really nice. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I have a friend who is studying uh, for an MFA in Minnesota, and she doesn't get off from school until tomorrow. So she has a class from 5 to 7.45. Fun stuff. What was your major yeah. at Stanford? Um, so as an undergrad, I uh, majored in environmental systems engineering, and then I did a co-terminal master's degree in management science and engineering, um, specifically focused on energy and the environment. Okay. So were you a co-term then when you were president? I was a co-term the year after being president, which is a really interesting experience hmm. to still be on campus after being one of the most powerful students on campus, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not to, not as like a, you know, tooting my own horn type thing, but it's, it's just weird to go from having so much access and having the ability to like flag anything for any administrator and have them take me seriously to going to like the average student who has to struggle to get responses to emails from administrators. So that was very eye-opening. How was that in terms of working with administrators after leaving the exec office? Yeah, it was pretty hit or miss, I think. I think it very much depended on who the individual was. And I think that was a little disappointing because I felt that I had left my relationship with most administrators on really good terms. Something that Rosie and I, Rosie, my, my vice president, um, and she's a graduate student at Stanford still. So she also, you know, went through a similar thing. But we tried really hard to make sure that we always maintained really strong relationships with administrators, even if we were frustrated with them, because we were very cognizant of the fact that we were only there for one year. And there were going to be people, you know, to come for years after us. And all it takes is one mistake to ruin that relationship. And the admin suddenly doesn't want to work with anyone in exec or anyone in the ASSU anymore. And so, so yeah, we tried hard to keep good relationships with people. But after completing my undergrad and after being exec the year after as a co-term, I'd say I got varied responses from administrators, some who still heard me out equivalently and others who didn't. It was eye-opening in the fact that I heard so often from administrators as exec that like they want to hear from students, they care about student voice, and they will take meeting requests and all of that kind of thing. That wasn't necessarily my experience <laughs> once I was no longer in a position of power. To be fair, I think some of that had to do with the circumstances where as once I was no longer an exec, a lot of the things that I was involved in that did require me to interact with administrators were issues where we were, you know, on decidedly opposite sides, right? Like I was very involved in the activism around installing Chanel Miller's plaque. And that was one where the provost had already made a decision. And so I think she, she had her mind made up in one sense, right? And so we were on opposite sides of this issue. And so I think that obviously feeds into how interactions go. But on the other hand, it was reassuring that there were some administrators who continued to hear directly from students and cared, and I, I appreciated that. Definitely a huge part of working with administrators is persuasion, 
And of course, mm -hmm. first you have to persuade the students to vote for you. So what was that like? Because I think one thing that I was impressed by is that you were an undergrad when you were president and Rosie was a grad student. If I remember correctly, every team since then has been primarily undergrads. So we don't really hear from grad students that much except in the GSC. So what was that like for you? In terms of running for election. So I initially was pretty set on not running. All my close friends, a lot of people in like ASSU circles will tell you that I was approached by many people saying like, are you running? Are you running? And I was like, I am absolutely not running. I want to enjoy my senior year. I was already chair of the undergraduate senate my sophomore year. And like that was incredibly stressful and at times extremely toxic. Leadership position to hold combined with everything else that was going on for me personally that year. It was just, it was a lot. And so I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going to be, I'm not running for exact. I decided to run ultimately for a few reasons. One was my mom convinced me and she was like, I think that if this is something you're passionate about and it's something that you have a track record of being able to get things done, then you owe it to people to do that for them if they're asking you to like step up to the plate and run. And then the other thing too was undergraduate senate chair, you know, the issue I primarily worked on was sexual violence prevention. I knew we were going to be entering a year where Stanford's pilot process was under review and Betsy DeVos was going to be issuing new regulations. And so I felt that I knew a lot of the key players in the administration. I had a working relationship with them and had worked on these issues with them before. And I felt that it was really important for me to be involved in that process. That was kind of the main issue why I ultimately decided to run. In terms of how Rosie and I ended up together, when I was undergraduate senate chair, Rosie was on the GSC. And and she was the co-chair of the GSC the following year, the year between when I was undergraduate senate chair and then when we were exec. We had worked together on projects before. I made it a point as senate chair to go to GSC meetings and show up and make sure that they knew who I was and build a really collaborative relationship with them. The senate before mine had ended in a flame of controversy, basically. It was probably one of the more detrimental years for the ASSU freshman year in terms of just like public perception, different scandals that had happened. I, as Senate Chair, was working closely with the GSC to kind of rehabilitate our relationship. And so Rosie and I got to know each other that way. And as I decided to run, I thought, well, wait, exec is supposed to represent both the undergraduate and graduate student populations. So why don't we have a graduate student on exec? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I asked Rosie, I like literally walked up to her in the ASSU office, and I was just like, hey, can we talk for a second? And I was like, this is out of nowhere, but uh, would you be interested in running for exec together? And I was like, I get you probably have to think about it, but also the filing period opens today. She was like, yeah, I'm down. And so that's, that's literally how it happened. We both shared a commitment to making sure that we were bringing as many voices to the table as possible and really elevating them. And before Rosie and I were exec, I think it had been about 20 years almost from when there was last a graduate student in exec. And I'm so, so stoked that um, I know the circumstances, you know, were difficult and everything this year, but um, I'm really excited that Chris Middleton is um, VP. I'm really excited that there is another graduate student in the exec world this year because I think it's so important like graduate there are more graduate students at Stanford than undergraduates I think 
exec historically has not done as great a job as we should be in making sure we're advocating on behalf of graduate students as well. And the best way to do that is to have graduate students directly at the table. So sorry, that was a long-winded answer, um, but that, yeah, that's how Rosie and I came together. Right. That, I think, is a very amazing way of putting it. I also am excited to be working with Chris, and I think that having a multitude of perspectives is super, super important. I also think that grad students sometimes take on more of a mentor role when it comes to working with the administration because they have a little more experience. And even the ones who haven't necessarily worked with the administration before kind of have more of a patience than I think undergrads do. So you mentioned earlier that one of the things you focused on was sexual violence prevention. I think that's super important. As we are familiar with, um, DeVos keeps changing her regulations. I certainly don't appreciate that. And I think that a lot of people can relate. Were there any other goals of your platform? Oh, yes. There was a lot that we um, hope to accomplish, some of which is carryover from prior years and some of which is things that we kind of came up with that were new ideas. Um, there was a lot that we wanted to do in terms of mental health resources. Viana was actually one of our fellows on our cabinet. She was part of the mental health fellow program that our co-directors led, so that's really fun. We also wanted to do things around the meal plan, meal swipes, and that was an area where we weren't really able to get very far, and I think decided to kind of refocus our efforts, but I think is a really important area to just continue to build pressure on. I think it's one of those things, I think you'll see that like a lot of issues, right, that change very rarely happens in the span of one year. It's the accumulation of multiple years of efforts. And so the things that we were trying to advocate for in terms of um, reforming meal plans, so they were more flexible and you had meal swipes roll over and things like that, like those were not new ideas and they continue to be problems now too, I think. It's one of those examples of building steady pressure and advocacy to hopefully, you know, a few years down the line, maybe it's something that we'll be able to have a breakthrough on. But some of the other things that we were really involved with was just elevating student voice in general across the board. I think it, I don't think it's something that we necessarily thought would end up being as much of our time as it was, but we found that in almost every meeting we were having, we were constantly being asked, what is the best way for us to get input from students? How do we actually hear from them? And it's hard because especially between graduates and undergraduate students, the systems are very different, right? Like undergraduates predominantly live on campus. The same is not too true of graduate students. Undergraduates probably identify more based on like where they live or like clubs they're a part of, organizations, et cetera. Graduate students are very have very different experiences based on whether, you know, they're a med student or a law student or they're in the School of Humanities, right? It's a challenge and it continues to be, but we, one of the things that I think has really outlived our one-year term, and we've we continued to hear that folks like refer back to it, which is great. I think we finally came a day where I was just like, we, why are we just rehashing this in every single meeting? Like, let's document it. And so we developed this memo that listed all these different strategies, best practices for student engagement. We provided case studies of examples where we thought folks had done it really well. One of the examples was ResX. The university was in their long-range planning process. We were meeting with a lot of different long-range planning groups in particular, and they wanted to know how to get student input. And we thought ResX did a good job. 
no one is perfect and I don't think I don't think the ResX process was perfect either but in terms of the things that we did see from them they had various like town halls they reached out to different stakeholder groups etc so there there's a lot that they did to really intentionally seek out student voice and I think that was one of the examples that we brought into this memo and it ended up being posted on uh, the president's website um, and I think it may still be there under like the university governance tab which is kind of cool but so that was a project that is I think one of the things with like the ASSU and student government is there are a lot of things that are just not that exciting to talk about like they're not flashy they don't seem like they're big substantive changes for us it was let's do the groundwork like let's lay this foundation so that in every process folks know how to get student input and we just eliminate that excuse right like you can no longer say i didn't know how to get student input because here's a multi-page document that we've given you of exactly how to get student input so i think that's one of the things that i continue to be proudest about as i reflect back in terms of things that we were able to accomplish and the relationships that were created as a result Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, the strongest foundation is what a real legacy is about. Right now, there's a lot of stuff that we're trying to work through. There's COVID, there's racial justice, student advocacy efforts, and, and I think there's a difficulty figuring out how to focus because we can't, unfortunately, we can't do everything. Not within a year, not within a decade, and especially during the pandemic. What kind of advice would you have for present and future executive teams on how to pick where to focus? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think you come in wanting to accomplish so much. And I think both with Erica and Viana's presidency, things just (laughs) changed so rapidly that like no one could have predicted. There's no way when like Erica ran, right, that she could have been like, oh, there's going to be a pandemic. This is how I'm going to handle it. And so I think the current and the most recent presidencies in particular have had to adapt and be flexible more than anyone else. But I I think it's generally true, not in a pandemic, that you come in wanting to accomplish a lot and life is unpredictable. Things that you never thought were going to be issues suddenly become hot button issues and you, you have to figure out how to respond to it because the administration is going to come to you first to seek student opinion. I think there's kind of a couple of different buckets in which your priorities should fall under. One is things that are urgent and short-term, things that are pandemic-related accommodations, for example. That's something that is urgent in this current time frame and makes sense to prioritize right now. Whereas there's, I think, other priorities that you may have that are more long-term in scope. And I think those maybe fall into the category that I was talking about earlier of like, these are things, these are building blocks, right? We're gonna lay the foundation, we're gonna continue to build on this, but we realistically recognize like, there isn't gonna be a lot of movement necessarily on this piece in this year. And that's not to say you shouldn't focus on those things, I think, those are really important things to still continue to work toward and build on. But as you determine, like, as Viana thinks about, for example, what does she personally spend her time on? What gets delegated out to other people on cabinet? What are things that the fellows on cabinet do? That's part of the decision-making process. There's things that we each personally are really passionate about, right? And like, no matter what is going on, they're things we care about and they're the reason that we ran. And 
for me, that was always sexual violence policy. And so we had two really, really amazing co-directors um, for sexual violence prevention. And I think they're both still involved with Cabinet today, which is really fantastic. I was so hands-on on that issue in a way that I wasn't necessarily with some of our other issue areas. And I think it's a recognition of what are you personally passionate about and personally informed upon? Is it going to cause more issues for me to try and like get up to speed on something and like sit in on this meeting versus having Jeff on cabinet like show up to that meeting instead because he's on the ground and he's doing that work. And so you kind of just have to sit with what your priorities are and how how they fit into the long and short-term vision of student needs at Stanford and also the university's kind of long-term vision. It's important to have a sense of like, what is the university thinking about right now? Because they will make decisions with or without you. And so it's incumbent on exec to really make sure that students are part of that decision-making process. That also, I think, is something that you just have to keep in mind and may require you to kind of adjust what you thought your priorities were going to be when you first went into the year. How do you balance a well-informed platform full of goals that have to kind of cater to all students with the areas that you end up focusing on? It's hard when you set up your cabinet, your cabinet should really flow from your platform, right? So you've promised the student body that these are issues you care about. And so you bring people onto your team who are equipped to deal with those issues. And I think cabinet is incredible. Like the people in cabinet are so well informed in the issue areas that they're advocating on you have to really delegate a lot to them to keep working towards all of these other policy priorities that you have your larger goals those may those may again shift what you're able to accomplish may shift based on the circumstances those shifts really show up at the like exact level of like where do Viana and Chris spend their time. Some of it shows up at the cabinet level and some of it shifts priorities for cabinet, but cabinet is really there to push forward the platform that folks ran on, right? And like make sure that we're working towards those goals. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just good to reiterate that not everyone can do everything and that there's a lot more power in having passion for the things that you're good at rather than trying to do everything. I know that since leaving the exec office, you have been working with Abolish Stanford Greek, which is a really hot topic right now for a variety of reasons, because some students have found families and some students have found strife and discord and mental health issues. So what is your pitch for dehousing Greek organizations? Greek organizations are holding such an immense place of power and privilege on our campus right now by having this unfettered access to housing. And it's something that no other student organization has. Well, ethnic housing is very different because that's a community of people who share a cultural identity and are living together. They're choosing to draw into that space, but that's, that's not true. Like you don't have to be part of an organization to be a, in living in that house. I don't have to be part of, I don't have to be part of BSU to live in Uj. I could just decide to live in Uj because that's a community I want to be a part of. And I have through either the pre-assignee process or through the draw, there is a system that is set up in which I have hypothetically just as much opportunity to live there as you do. That's not the case for 
Kappa Sag, for example, right? Like they have this house, they get to choose who lives there. And because we know that here I'm talking specifically and only about the IFC and ISC sororities, the Interfraternity Council and Inter Sorority Council. These organizations are the ones that are predominantly white and um, extremely class privileged. I'm not talking about the multicultural multicultural orgs. I'm not talking about officer MGC councils at all. I just want to put that disclaimer out there. But we know that IFC and ISC organizations are significantly the people in those organizations overall are more privileged. They come from wealthier backgrounds and you have to pay to be a part of this, right? You have to pay several hundred dollars a quarter. The way that the dues system is set up, if you, there are some organizations where like there may be scholarships available, but then if you deactivate, then you have to pay that scholarship money back to the organization, which is extremely problematic, right? We believe that these organizations do not deserve special status on our campus where they have access to housing just because they've historically always had access to housing. When we look at the row, right, the row already has, the themes that exist on the row are already predominantly white themes, right? Like you have Slav, you have House Mint, you have Casa, you have French House, and then in addition to that you have Muwekma, and then you have right story. The story and Muwekma are not part of this argument that I'm making. The majority, though, of these themes that do exist on the row are very white Eurocentric themes. And so the row already has a problem of being a very white place. And when you throw into the mix that there are at any point in time, right, up to 10 Greek organizations that are housed we're creating a really unwelcoming space for people of color, for low-income folks, for gender non-conforming folks, folks who have marginalized identities, for them to be on the row and have the same level of access to those spaces. We have also seen that having access to a house as a Greek organization leads to some pretty awful behavior. We saw in the AAU survey data, sexual assaults disproportionately happen in fraternity houses compared to other dorms. And when you look at it, like in comparison to the overall population, it's pretty shocking. We just totally see that there are people who find community in these organizations. And we understand that. You know, folks that are part of Abolished Stanford Greek Life are also people who, a lot of whom have been in Greek organizations, have found friends there. I, I personally was in a sorority. I did find a community and I did find really great people that I'm still friends with today. But when I look at it, for me, I look at is net positive or net negative. Does my good experience make it okay for five other people to have been sexually assaulted, to have eating disorders, to be hazed? all of these different issues that we see really get perpetuated in housed organizations. And so that's really why we're pushing to unhoused Greek organizations. We're also really aware of the fact that right now we're in a pandemic because there are no students living on campus or very limited students living on campus right now, that row housing is not going to be available for the rest of the year for students to draw into like usual. We do really see an opportunity where if any other year you were to talk about unhousing Greek organizations, 
you would be taking away housing from folks who currently live there, right? But right now there is no one living there. And so we think this is the least disruptive time for Stanford to make this decision to ultimately benefit the overall community, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. And I do agree with you. But I also want to mention that earlier you said that there are multicultural fraternities mm-hmm. and sororities. If we manage to dehouse all Greek organizations, we are taking away some communities. How do you think that those communities can reform without the housing? Because marginalized groups are already marginalized and taking away a space for them does not particularly seem fair. So I want to be really, really clear. We are not talking about taking anything away from MGC or OFSA organizations. The resolution that the ASSU passed that abolished Stanford Greek Life authored, that resolution is very explicit in that that resolution only talks about IFC and ISC organizations. Our our group abolished Stanford Greek Life. We do not take a position on any sort of changes related to MGC and OFSA organizations, primarily because the members of our of our group were not in those organizations and it's truly not our place to speak about them and so the actions that our group is pushing for do not take a stance on whether like mgc and officer organizations should have a house for example and that is something that continues to remain on the table and would be an open option it is not part of the conversation that we are leading I think that there could be arguments from IFC groups about how that might be unfair, but I definitely agree with you overall. One thing that's come up several times is working with administrators, which can be very frustrating. As you said, that particularly in cases where they've already made up their minds or where they are withholding their overall decisions from the student body until the last minute, which I think is understandable from their point of view in that they're trying to minimize losses. I really don't appreciate that perspective, but it is understandable. One example that I can give is that last year I was trying to convince Susie to think about doing video media instead of always relying on emails because after a while people just don't read, particularly when the pandemic is happening. Although this was a conversation that we had via email before that. So this took six months for that to actually happen. And now they've kind of given up on that method for the most part. But what I'm getting at is Working with people who are a little bit frustrating sometimes is very difficult. And I've heard from various people that you have been very, very good at that via email, in person. So what kind of advice would you have for working with administrators for the ASSU, but also students in general, because you have both sides of the story there? I think the single most important thing is building our relationship, right? Like, it's really easy. I mean, I fall into this trap sometimes too. It's really easy to say Stanford did this, Stanford did that, and treat the administration as a monolith. And I think that misses a lot of the nuance of what's happening behind the scenes, that there are individual people who are human beings with their own emotions and feelings who are behind each of these decisions and processes. And I think some of the success that we were able to have really comes down to building and maintaining relationships. And so I think it's important that you get to know the underlying person, right? The person behind the title. You know, do they have a dog? Do they have kids? Like, what are the shared 
common points of interest, right? Like, I actually, I knew Persis as just as she was the dean of the School of Engineering, but right before she became provost because she had taught my physics 41A class. I had actually been in a classroom setting with her and we knew each other from there, which was a really great common point for us to start building our relationship off of. Truly, you have to, especially if you want to be involved in the decisions, and this is more for exec, this is less true probably for the average student. There are sometimes instances where the administration, members of the administration will come to exec specifically to preview something that is potentially going to happen or to get input. And they'll ask for that request to be treated confidential. Every exec kind of has to make the decision for themselves about how to handle those situations. If you determine that it's something that's really harmful that the student body needs to know about, then that's a decision that you have to make. But the flip side is that if they're not coming to exec for that confidential gut check is what I call it, then they're likely not talking to any students. And if you burn that bridge and break confidentiality, then you're ruining that relationship for years to come between ASSU and the administration. And there have been different instances that have played out several years ago. And so that is a reason why I say building relationships, building that trust is so important. Because if Susie, for example, knows that she can really trust you um, and that if she comes to you with the best of intentions to genuinely get your feedback on something that she's thinking about and she can trust that you're not going to immediately go to the FOHO or something, right? Ultimately, the student body is better off for it because I would much rather Susie hears from students than she make the decision without, you know, consulting any students at all. And I, I use Susie as an example, right, just off the top of my head, but I think Susie does actually do a pretty good job of engaging with students and getting student input. And so that at the exact level is really foundational, is building that relationship, getting to know the underlying person, making sure that you maintain a relationship of trust with them. And there are a small handful of folks in the administration that I still talk to today, even now as an alum, and we continue to maintain that relationship and enjoy a great friendship, which I think is really important to have as well. So I think, you know, you had said, you know, what are your thoughts too for like an average student? I think it's a little harder. It's really good to play like the inside outside strategy where you then have allies who are in those meetings with administrators and can really work behind the scenes on some of the like more detailed nuances of what's going on. And that's a really effective tactic and a really good way for student organizations to partner with the ASSU to actually make things happen. Just a couple more questions, because I know you have to go soon. What kind of next steps do you think that the current and future execs should focus on? Foundationally, the work of exec always has to be grounded in the needs of students. And so continuing to solicit student opinion. I know they did, you know, a couple of different listening sessions in conjunction with the administration. I think things like that are really great, especially important right now at a time when everyone is kind of scattered across the world and we can't physically come together. And so I would definitely encourage folks to keep keep doing that. And I think they're doing really great work. So I always think it's nice to end with something a little bit lighter. What are you up to over the holidays? It's a great question. So I'm living at home with my parents right now because of the pandemic. We're trying to go on some hiking trips this week that are just like day trips where we can drive and not have to stop anywhere or do anything overnight just to be safe. But I'm looking forward to being able to do that and doing a lot of different um, holiday baking and cooking projects. Very yummy. And I have, I have my parents who are my guinea pigs, right, where I can 
<laughs> whatever I cook, which right. is really cool. So um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Everything that I have said on this podcast is my opinion and only my opinion and is not the views of my employer or anyone else. Now that I'm a working adult, I just want to make sure that caveat is out there. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I really love that you're doing this podcast, Cricket, and I'm really excited at all the by all the really great guests that you've been able to bring on, both within the ASSU and um, different administrators. And I think especially with folks being scattered with the pandemic, this is a really great way to continue communicating with the students. And I love I love whenever the ASSU decides to innovate and do something new. And so uh, major props to you on that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing the end result of the Abolish Stanford Greek Movement and any other work that you are doing with Stanford, um, both with the ASSU and other VSOs. So thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. And I will yeah, definitely course. keep you posted. Awesome. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye. That was Shanta, and this is another episode of All Students of Stanford Unite, the official podcast of the Associated Students of Stanford University and Stanford Student Enterprises. I'm your host, Cricket Vitaly. Thanks so much, and have a great December. Music